Section 2 of A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia by Alan Clasey. Section 2 Stay in Melbourne. At last we are in Australia. Our feet feel strange as they tread upon terra firma, and our sea legs, to use a sailor's phrase, are not so ready to leave us after a four-month service, as we should have anticipated. But it matters little, for we are in the colonies, walking with undignified, awkward gait, not on a fashionable promenade, but upon a little wooden pier. The first sounds that greet our ears are the noisy tones of some watermen, who are loitering on the building of wooden logs and boards, which we, as do the good people of Victoria, dignify with the undeserved title of peer. There they stand in their waterproof caps and skins, tolerably idle and exceedingly independent, with one eye on the lookout for a fare and the other cast longingly towards the open doors of Lyadet's public-house, which is built a few yards from the landing-place and alongside the main road to Melbourne. "'Aye, skipper, times isn't as they used to was,' shouted one, addressing the captain of one of the vessels then lying in the bay, who was rowing himself to shore, with no other assistant or companion than a sailor boy. The captain, a well-built, fine-looking specimen of an English seaman, merely laughed at this impromptu salutation. I say, skipper, I don't quite like that d d stroke of yours. No answer, but, as if completely deaf to these remarks, as well as the insulting tone in which they were delivered, the skipper continued giving his orders to his boy, and then leisurely ascended the steps. He walked straight up to the waterman, who was lounging against the railing. So, my fine fellow, you didn't quite admire that stroke of mine. Now I've another stroke that I think you'll admire still less. And with one blow he sent him reeling across the railing on the opposite side. The waterman slowly recovered his equilibrium, muttering, That was a safe dodge, as the gentleman knew he was the heaviest man of the two. Then never let your tongue say what your fist can't defend, was the cool retort, as another blow sent him staggering to his original place, amidst the unrestrained laughter of his companions whilst the captain unconcernedly walked into Lyadets, whither we also betook ourselves, not a little surprised and amused by this our first introduction to colonial customs and manners. The fact is, the watermen regard the masters of the ships in the bay as sworn enemies to their business. Many are runaway sailors, and therefore, I suppose, have a natural antipathy that way, added to which 
besides being no customers themselves, the skippers, by the loan of their boats, often save their friends from the exorbitant charges these watermen levy. Exorbitant they truly are. Not a boat would they put off for the nearest ship in the bay for less than a pound, and before I quitted those regions, two and three times that sum was often demanded for only one passenger. We had just paid at the rate of only three shillings and sixpence each, but this trifling charge was in consideration of the large party, more than a dozen, who had left our ship in the same boat together. Meanwhile, we have entered Lyadets, N. Attendant, the Melbourne Omnibus, some of our number, too impatient to wait longer, had already started on foot. We were shown into a clean, well-furnished sitting-room, with mahogany dining-table and chairs, and a showy glass over the mantelpiece. An English-looking barmaid entered. Would the company like some wine or spirits? Someone ordered sherry of which I only remember that it was vile trash at eight shillings a bottle. And now the cry of his the bus brought us quickly outside again, where we found several new arrivals also waiting for it. I had hoped from the name, or rather misname, of the conveyance to gladden my eyes with the sight of something civilised. Alas, for my disappointment! There stood a long, tumbled-to-pieces-looking wagon, not covered in, with a plank down each side to sit upon, and a miserable narrow plank it was. Into the vehicle were crammed a dozen people, and an innumerable host of portmanteaus, large and small, carpet-bags, baskets, brown-paper parcels, bird-cage and inmate, etc., all of which, as is generally the case, were packed in a manner the most calculated to contribute the largest amount of inconvenience to the live portion of the cargo, and to drag this grand affair into Melbourne, where harnessed thereto the most wretched-looking objects in the shape of horses that I have ever beheld. A slight roll tells us we are off, and is this the beautiful scenery of Australia was my first melancholy reflection. Mud and swamp, swamp and mud, relieved here and there by some few trees, which looked as starved and miserable as ourselves. The cattle we passed appeared in a wretched condition, and the human beings on the road seemed all to belong to one family, so truly Vandemonian was the cast of their countenances. The rainy season's not over, observed the driver, in an apologetic tone, our eyes and uneasy limbs most feelingly corroborated his statement, for as we moved along at a foot pace, the rolling of the omnibus, owing to the deep ruts and heavy soil, brought us into most unpleasant contact with the various packages before mentioned. On we went towards Melbourne, now stopping for the unhappy horses to take breath, then passing our pedestrian messmates, and now arriving at a small specimen of a swamp, 
and whilst they, with trousers tucked high above the knee and boots well saturated, step, slide, and tumble manfully through it, we give a fearful roll to the left, ditto, ditto, to the right, then a regular standstill, or perhaps, by way of variety, are all, all but jolted over the animals' heads, till at length all minor considerations of bumps and bruises are merged in the anxiety to escape without broken bones. The Yarra, said the conductor, I look straight ahead, and innocently asked, Where? for I could only discover a tract of marsh or swamp, which I fancy must have resembled the fens of Lincolnshire, as they were some years ago, before draining was introduced into that country. Over Princess Bridge we now passed, up Swanson Street, then into Great Burke Street, and now we stand opposite the post office, the appointed rendezvous with the walkers, who are there awaiting us, splashed, wet, and tired, and also, I must confess, very cross. Right thankful was I to be carried over the dirty road and be safely deposited beneath the wooden portico outside the post office. Our ride to Melbourne cost us only half a crown apiece, and a shilling for every parcel. The distance we had come was between two and three miles. The non-arrival of the mail steamer left us now no other care save the all-important one of procuring food and shelter. Scouts were accordingly dispatched to the best hotels. They returned with long faces, full. The second-rate, and in fact every respectable inn and boarding or lodging-house, were tried, but with no better success. Here and there a solitary bed could be obtained, but for our digging party entire, which consisted of my brother, four shipmates, and myself, no accommodation could be procured, and we wished, if possible, to keep together. It's a case, ejaculated one, casting his eyes to the slight roof above us, as if calculating what sort of night shelter it would afford. At this moment the two last searchers approached, their countenances not quite so woe-begone as before. "'Well!' exclaimed we, all in chorus, as we surrounded them, too impatient to interrogate at greater length. Thank heavens! They had been successful. The housekeeper of the surgeon who with his wife had just gone up to Forest Creek, would receive us to board and lodge for thirty shillings a week each. But as the accommodation was of the indifferent order, it was not as yet une affaire arrangée. On farther inquiry, we found the indifferent accommodation consisted in there being but one small sleeping room for the gentleman, and myself to share the bed and apartment of the temporary mistress. This was vastly superior to gypsying in the dirty streets, so we lost no time in securing our new berths, and ere very long, with appetites undiminished by these petty anxieties, 
we did ample justice to the dinner which our really kind hostess quickly placed before us. The first night on shore, after so long a voyage, could scarcely seem otherwise than strange. One missed the eternal rocking at which so many grumble on board ship. Dogs, Melbourne is full of them, kept up an incessant barking. Revolvers were cracking in all directions until daybreak giving one a pleasant idea of the state of society, and last, not least, of these annoyances, was one unmentionable to ears polite, which would alone have sufficed to drive sleep away from poor wearied me. How I envied my companion, as accustomed to these disagreeables, she slept soundly by my side, but morning at length dawned, and I fell into a refreshing slumber. The next few days were busy ones for all, though rather dismal to me, as I was confined almost entirely within doors, owing to the awful state of the streets, for in the colonies at this season of the year one may go out prepared for fine weather, with blue sky above and dry underfoot, and in less than an hour should a colonial shower come on, be unable to cross some of the streets without a plank being placed from the middle of the road to the pathway, or the alternative of walking in water up to the knees. This may seem a doleful and overdrawn picture of my first colonial experience, but we had arrived at a time when the colony presented its worst aspect to a stranger. The rainy season had been unusually protracted this year. In fact, it was not yet considered entirely over, and the gold mines had completely upset everything and everybody, and put a stop to all improvements about the town or elsewhere. Our party, on returning to the ship the day after our arrival, witnessed the French leave-taking of all her crew who during the absence of the captain jumped overboard, and were quickly picked up and landed by the various boats about. This desertion of the ships by the sailors is an everyday occurrence. The diggings themselves, or the large amount they could obtain for the run home from another master, offer too many temptations. Consequently, our passengers had the amusement of hauling up from the hold their different goods and chattels, and so great was the confusion that fully a week elapsed before they were all got to shore. Meanwhile we were getting initiated into colonial prices. Money did indeed take to itself wings and fly away. Firearms were at a premium. One instance will suffice. My brother sold a six-barreled revolver for which he had given sixty shillings at Baker's in Fleet Street for sixteen pounds, and the parting with it at that price was looked upon as a great favour. Imagine boots, and they very second-rate ones, at four pounds a pair, one of our between-deck passengers, who had speculated with a small capital of forty pounds in boots and cutlery, told me afterwards 
that he had disposed of them the same evening he had landed, at a net profit of ninety pounds, no trifling addition to a poor man's purse. Labour was at a very high price, carpenters, boot and shoemakers, tailors, wheelwrights, joiners, smiths, glaziers, and, in fact, all useful trades, were earning from twenty to thirty shillings a day. The very men working on the roads could get eleven shillings per diem, and many a gentleman in this disarranged state of affairs was glad to fling old habits aside and turn his hand to whatever came readiest. I knew one in particular, whose brother is at this moment serving as colonel in the army in India, a man more fitted for a gay London life than a residence in the colonies. The diggings were too dirty and uncivilised for his taste. His capital was quickly dwindling away beneath the expenses of the comfortable life he led at one of the best hotels in town so he turned to what as a boy he had learnt for amusement and obtained an addition to his income of more than four hundred pounds a year as house carpenter in the morning you might see him trudging off to his work and before night might meet him at some ball or soiree among the elite of melbourne i shall not attempt an elaborate description of the town of melbourne or its neighbouring villages. A subject so often and well discussed might almost be omitted altogether. The town is very well laid out, the streets, which are all straight, running parallel with and across one another, are very wide, but are incomplete, not lighted, and many are unpaved. Owing to the want of lamps, few except when full moon dare stir out after dark some of the shops are very fair but the goods all partake too largely of the flash order for the purpose of suiting the taste of successful diggers their wives and families it is ludicrous to see them in the shops men who before the gold mines were discovered toiled hard for their daily bread taking off half a dozen thick gold rings from their fingers, and trying to pull on to their rough, well-hardened hands the best white kids to be worn at some wedding party, whilst the wife, proud of the novel ornament, descants on the folly of hiding them beneath such useless articles as gloves. The two principal streets are Collins Street and Elizabeth Street. The former runs east and west, the latter crossing it in the centre. Melbourne is built on two hills, and the view from the top of Collins Street east is very striking on a fine day, when well filled with passengers and vehicles. Down the eye passes till it reaches Elizabeth Street at the foot, then up again, and the moving mass seems like so many tiny black specks in the distance, and the country beyond looks but a little piece of green. A great deal of confusion arises from the want of their names being painted on the corners of the streets. To a stranger this is particularly inconvenient, the more so as being straight 
they appear all alike on first acquaintance. The confusion is also increased by the same title, with slight variation, being applied to so many, as, for instance, Collins Street East, Collins Street West, Little Collins Street East, Little Collins Street West, etc., etc. Churches and chapels for all sects and denominations meet the eye, but the established church has, of all, the worst provision for its members, only two small churches being as yet completed, and Sunday after Sunday do numbers return from St. Peter's, unable to obtain even standing room beneath the porch. For the gay there are two circuses and one theatre, where the ladies who frequent it smoke short tobacco pipes in the boxes and dress circle. The country round is very pretty, particularly Richmond and Collingwood. The latter will, I expect, soon become part of Melbourne itself. It is situated at the fashionable, that is, east, end of Melbourne, and the buildings of the city and this suburban village are making rapid strides towards each other. Of Richmond I may remark that it does possess a star and garter, though a very different affair to its namesake at the Antipodes, being only a small public house. On the shores of the bay, at nice driving distances, are Brighton and St Kilda, Two or three fall to pieces bathing machines are at present the only stock in trade of these watering places. Still, should some would-be fashionables among my readers desire to emigrate, it may gratify them to learn that they need not forego the pleasure of visiting Brighton in the season. When I first arrived, as the weather was still very cold and wet, my greatest source of discomfort arose from the want of coal fires, and the draughts which are innumerable, owing to the slight manner in which the houses are run up, in some of the front entrances opens direct into the sitting-rooms, very unpleasant, and entirely precluding the not-at-home to an unwelcome visitor. Wood-fires have at best but a cheerless look, and I often long for the bright blaze and merry fireside of an English home. Firewood is sold at the rate of fifty shillings for a good-sized barrow full. The colonists, I here speak of the old established ones, are naturally very hospitable, and disposed to receive strangers with great kindness, but the present ferment has made them forget everything in the glitter of their own minds and all comfort is laid aside, money is the idol, and making it is the one mania which absorbs every other thought. The walking inhabitants are of themselves a study. Glance into the streets, all nations, classes, and costumes are represented there. Chinamen with pigtails and loose trousers, aborigines with a solitary blanket flung over them. Vandemonian pickpockets, with cunning eyes and light fingers, all, in truth, from the successful digger in his blue serge shirt, and with green veil still hanging round his wide awake, to the fashionable, attired, 
newly arrived gent from London, who stares around him in amazement and disgust. You may see, and hear too, some thoroughly colonial scenes in the streets. Once, in the middle of the day, when passing up Elizabeth Street, I heard the unmistakable sound of a mob behind, and as it was gaining upon me, I turned into the enclosed ground in front of the Roman Catholic Cathedral to keep out of the way of the crowd. A man had been taken up for horse-stealing, and a rare ruffianly set of both sexes were following the prisoner and the two policemen who had him in charge. If but six of ye were of my mind, shouted one, it's this moment you'd release him. The crowd took the hint, and to it they set with right good will, yelling, swearing, and pushing with awful violence. The owner of the stolen horse got up a counter-demonstration, and every few yards the procession was delayed by a trial of strength between the two parties. Ultimately the police conquered, but this is not always the case, and often lives are lost and limbs broken in the struggle. So weak is the force maintained by the colonial government for the preservation of order. Another day, when passing the post office, a regular tropical shower of rain came on rather suddenly, and I hastened up to the platform for some shelter. As I stood there, looking out into Great Burke Street, a man and, I suppose, his wife passed by. He had a letter in his hand for the post, but as the pathway to the receiving box looked very muddy, he made his companion take it to the box, whilst he himself, from beneath his umbrella, complacently watched her getting wet through. Colonial politeness, thought I, as the happy couple walked on. Sometimes a jovial wedding party comes dashing through the streets. There they go, the bridegroom with one arm round his lady's waist, the other raising a champagne bottle to his lips. The gay vehicles that follow contain company even more unrestrained, and from them noisier demonstrations of merriment may be heard. These diggers' weddings are all the rage, and bridal veils, white kid gloves, and above all, orange blossoms are generally most difficult to procure at any price. At times you may see men half mad, like halfpence, out of their pockets into the streets, and I once saw a digger who was looking over a large quantity of banknotes deliberately tear to pieces and trample in the mud under his feet every soiled or ragged one he came to, swearing all the time at the gold brokers for giving him dirty paper money for pure Alexander gold. He wouldn't carry dirt in his pocket, not he, thank God. He'd plenty to tear up and spend too. Melbourne is full of Jews. On a Saturday some of the streets are half-closed. There are only two pawnbrokers in the town. The most thriving trade there is keeping an hotel or public house, which always have a lamp before their doors. These at night serve as a beacon to the stranger to keep as far from them as possible, they being 
with few exceptions, the resort, after dark, of the most ruffianly characters. On the 2nd of September, the long-expected mail-steamer arrived, and two days after we procured our letters from the post-office. I may here remark that the want of proper management in this department is the greatest cause of inconvenience to fresh arrivals, and to the inhabitants of Melbourne generally. There is one small window, whence letters directed to lie at the office are given out, and as the ships from England daily discharge their living cargoes into Melbourne, the crowd round this inefficient delivering place rendered getting one's letters the work, not of hours, but days. Newspapers, particularly pictorial ones, have, it would appear, a remarkable facility for being lost en route. Several numbers of the illustrated London news had been sent me, and, although the letters posted with them arrived in safety, the papers themselves never made their appearance. I did hear that, when addressed to an uncolonial name, and with no grander direction than the post office itself, the clerks are apt to appropriate them. This is, perhaps, only a wee bit of Melbourne scandal. The arrival of our letters from England left nothing now to detain us, and made us all anxious to commence our trip to the diggings, although the roads were in an awful condition. Still, we would delay no longer, and the bustle of preparation begun. Stores of flour, tea and sugar, tents and canvas, camp ovens, cooking utensils, tin plates and pannikins, opossum rugs and blankets, drays, carts and horses, cradles, etc., etc., had to be looked at, bought and paid for. On board ship, my brother had joined himself to a party of four young men, who had decided to give the diggings a trial. Four other of our shipmates had also joined themselves into a digging party, and when they heard of our intended departure, proposed travelling up together and separating on our arrival. This was settled, and a proposal made that between the two sets they should raise funds to purchase a dray and horses, and make a speculation in flour, tea, etc., on which an immense profit was being made at the diggings. It would also afford the convenience of taking up tents, cradles, and other articles impossible to carry up without. The dray cost one hundred pounds, and the two strong cart horses ninety and one hundred pounds respectively. This, with the goods themselves and a few sundries in the shape of harness and cords, made only a venture of about fifty pounds apiece. While these arrangements were rapidly progressing, a few other parties wished to join ours for safety on the road, which was agreed to, and the day fixed upon for the departure was the 7th of September. Everyone except myself was to walk, and we furthermore determined to camp out as much as possible, and thus avoid the vicinity of the inns and halting places on the way which are frequently the lurking places of thieves and bushrangers. 
On the Sunday previous to the day on which our journey was to commence, I had a little adventure, which pleased me at the time, though, but for the sequel, not worth mentioning here. I had walked with my brother and a friend to St. Peter's Church, but we were a few minutes behind time, and therefore could find no unoccupied seat. Thus disappointed, we strolled over Princess Bridge on to the other side of the Yarra. Between the bridge and the beach, on the south side of the river, is a little city of tents, called Little Adelaide. They were inhabited by a number of families, that the rumour of the Victoria gold mines had induced to leave South Australia, and whose finances were unequal to the high prices in Melbourne. Government levies a tax of five shillings a week on each tent, built upon land as wild and barren as the bleakest common in England. We did not wander this morning towards Little Adelaide, but followed the Yarra in its winding course inland, in the direction of the botanical gardens. Upon a gentle rise beside the river, not far enough away from Melbourne to be inconvenient, but yet sufficiently removed from its mud and noise, were pitched two tents, evidently new, with crimson paint still gay upon the round knobs of the centre posts, and looking altogether more in trim for a gala day in merry England than a trip to the diggings. The sun was high above our heads, and the day intensely hot, so much so that I could not resist the temptation of tapping at the canvas door to ask for a draught of water. A gentleman obeyed the summons, and on learning the occasion of this unceremonious visit, politely accommodated me with a camp stool and some delicious fresh milk, in Melbourne almost a luxury. Whilst I was imbibing this with no little relish, my friends were entering into conversation with our new acquaintance. The tents belonged to a party just arrived by the steamer from England, with everything complete for the diggings, to which they meant to proceed in another week, and where I had the pleasure of meeting them again, though under different and very peculiar circumstances. The tent which I had invaded was inhabited by two the elder of whom, a powerfully built man of thirty, formed a strong contrast to his companion, a delicate-looking youth, whose apparent age could not have exceeded sixteen years. After a short rest, we returned to Melbourne, well pleased with our little adventure. The next day was hardly long enough for our numerous preparations, and it was late before we retired to rest. Six was the hour appointed for the next morning's breakfast. Excited with anticipating the adventures to commence on the morrow, no wonder that my dreams should all be golden ones. End of Section 2